do sometimes feel that that's why they've come to me, yeah. us. Um, I was just glad you didn't ask. I have had a client once say to me, I want an award-winning building. Yes. And, no pressure. And then Roger Wood, <laughs> who I used to work for, said to me, Claire, if anyone says that, you run the other direction. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and we, yeah, I soon learned that it didn't work out very well. Um, the GFC hit and the job fell over, which was the best thing that could have happened. Mm. But um, I think it's, I don't know, it's a funny one because actually Mel Bright and I talk about this quite a lot, that um, I, we... We try, we're keen for, to not make a focus of being female architects. We're keen mm -hmm. to just be um, seen as architects. Mm. Um, however, there's, there seems to be, because there are fewer of us, um, I suppose proportionately to yeah. men, um, there seems to always be this, I suppose we do tend to get a bit more focus because there's a smaller proportion. You're yeah. always doing talks. We are male yeah. and other women. Yeah. Um, but... So I don't know whether it has anything really to do with our gender. I think for me it's really about what my interests are and we've always had interests in um, really sort of the domestic rituals and mm. really enjoying sort of solving really pragmatic problems. Mm. And often I find, given that we do a lot of family houses, female clients, the female part of the client, because it's often couples, mm. um, really value that and that's often what they're looking for, that yeah. they've found that other architects they've been been to don't perhaps are not interested in that process are really yeah. maybe more form driven or those kind of things yeah. and I don't think that that's something that we can just generalize sex you know yeah. um, but yeah but yeah. but I I quite like that because that's what interests me and then when that's something that we can satisfy mm -hmm. and really I suppose I take a lot of pleasure in the delight that people have in living in their houses once Absolutely. they move in and I think and I, I'm always surprised how surprised they are even though we've gone through this three, two and three year process, they're often still so surprised with the outcome, even though we've taken them on this journey of explaining the spaces, how they work, showing them visualisations, and they still don't quite believe that it's theirs at the yeah. end. Yeah. But do you think they have a different set of expectations that might come with that? I mean, this is partly a loaded question mm. because it's something that we've found when um, we've had it a few times where people have chosen part of the selection has been because... I'm a woman, mm. and there is some sort of unwritten understanding that I might have particular traits or qualities or ways of practising that will be different and might be seen as desirable. On the other hand, they can have... There's always a flip side to something, you know, mm. positive and the negative. So, for instance, that um, we hear it a lot, that women are better listeners, for instance, and yet... The risk with that is that if there's moments where a level of authority is needed in enabling a project to happen, um, it's how you manage those uh, expectations and can still do some of the things that have to be done in terms of taking charge of a project and making it happen. Mm. So I've just yeah. always found it a, a, a double-edged sword when it's, it's part of why you might get a job. As I said, it's sometimes why you might lose that job mm. too. I think, though, I definitely find in the earlier years I found taking, having to perform that authoritative role quite difficult because mm -hmm. I, I don't like confrontation. Mm -hmm. And um, But there's been, in the last couple of years, we've had a couple of tricky clients and, and I've really found sometimes it's about self-preservation but it's also about protecting the team at work Absolutely. in the office and really trying to stamp out any of that sort of mm. and often it's 
not warranted at all. Um, the behaviour of people mm -hmm. and got, there's no sort of reason for it. And I and I think that comes with experience and confidence and 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 still. Tr and I think my husband's a, a commercial builder and I think deals with enormous amounts of stress. And he's always said to me, "Take the emotion out of it." You know, and as I I used to really. Um, feel the emotion of a lot of decisions and take things very personally and yeah. I think I think we'll never be like lawyers that can dis you know disassociate with a problem but the more you can try and step back and not worry about things so emotionally which mm. is often what they say men are better at, at being able to do mm. than than women but I think it's a real skill to be able to do that. Mm. No it is it's really mm. interesting that level of detachment sometimes that's mm. required, which is the opposite of the other part of the job, which I think requires vast amounts of non-detachment, being really seriously engaged and empathetic. Absolutely. With, with people, so. But it's that fine balance. It's really yeah. still understanding, particularly in residential, which we both do a lot mm. of, there's there's so much emotion in it. And, um, and I think that's one of the things that, like you talked about, listening, that's something that we really spend a lot of time doing and we, I find we're almost nurturing clients through the process and sometimes we're psychologists trying to solve what each party wants. And But I think it's just trying to find that sort of balance. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Mm. So why did you start your own practice? What, what triggered that? Like having worked with a number of interesting practices, what mm. is it that makes you think, okay, I'm going to start my own thing now? I, I don't really remember the light bulb moment. I think yeah. I really had some fantastic experiences, um, particularly working under Roger and Randall at Woodmarsh. And, yeah. and I think um, I think we probably practice quite differently. And, it, and um, but it was just, I think it was just one of those things. I don't remember consciously thinking, I must start my own practice, you know, mm -hmm. but I, I remember when I, right. yeah, I, I do remember getting the occasional person saying, oh, you're an architecture graduate, would you design me a kitchen? Yeah. And I almost remember thinking, Let's do that very diligently on the weekends and at night time because one day I'll be an employer and I don't want someone doing that in my time, you know. Mm. So there was, it was always just there that it was this sort of assumption that that's what I would do. Mm. Um, and I think with that, um, maybe subconsciously, there's always that thought process that there's it brings greater personal flexibility and freedom and particularly with wanting to have children. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I suppose I was reflecting on that today in that you do... It does bring you freedom, but then running a business brings so many other challenges. And, and I, look, I wouldn't have it any other way, but it, I think particularly as a single director, yeah. I think which is why I've always thought of you, in, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and tried to look to how you do things. Um, it's really just trying to find, find that balance. And I think before having children, it was very common that I'd work till eight, nine o'clock at night, and you just sort of, there's always more that you can do, and it's Absolutely. very hard to sort of switch off. Yeah. Um, but children really force you to, you have to start delegating, you try and work out where your time's most valuable. Mm. Um, and, and strategic. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and I think the challenge is always that you never feel like you're doing, um, you're always sort of failing in one area of your life or the other. Yeah. Um, and I think Multiple that's something... failings. Yeah. Are, oh, and sort of the guilt of, you know, not doing one well enough or the other. But I think, um, again, as you get more through it and do more and more, you just have to, you know, not worry about that. Like, yeah. I sort of often feel I'm always the first one that leaves the office at night because I, I have to cross town to get and pick children up at six o'clock. You feel bad when you leave. I always feel bad because yeah. I feel like the slacker. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but... 
they all know, and I hope they know, but they know that I'm the one that's working at night on the laptop once the kids have gone to bed or... Send a token email at no, midnight no. to yeah. on. I, yeah. I'm working. <laughs> so, no, but I think... And I, I think, too, I, again, I remembered um, that I had my first child... I've got two children, five and eight, and the first one was when the practice was about three years old and, and I felt... I couldn't take maternity leave. I was back in with the two-week-old under the desk. And um, and I really remembered feeling that if I wasn't there or, or making myself available to clients, that I wasn't serious and I wasn't dedicated architect. And, um, and I really recalled, I suppose, the second time around, how I really thought, no, I'm not available on Tuesdays and I'm not available on Thursdays. And that just, it takes confidence to do that. And I didn't have any friends who'd been through that and... I think it's um, anyway. Not that it's all just about talking about women and yeah. families, but it's know. it's. But, but, but I mean, maybe another question too is having been in other practices, um, when you set up your own, the things that you've seen done elsewhere and the ways of doing them and how you might want to do them differently. Like mm. I, I certainly remember uh, having you know I worked in a range of different places: Ministry of Housing overseas in a kind of multidisciplinary design practice. Um, and at Robinson Chen, which was both building company and an architecture practice. So each of them, and there, there were others as well, but they all taught me something slightly different about ways of practicing. And then, so when I started KTA, it was thinking how might I practice like or unlike those other experiences. Uh, and remembering very fondly Robinson Chen times, but they were really long hours. And I used to think, surely there's some way that you can do really good work with a high level of integrity, but still work within a reasonably normal working day. There's got to be a way. And so that, that you know, part of the reason for wanting to set up a practice was to see if you could do it in a way that was not like I'd seen it done. And all the sorts of myths around... Uh, Decent design practices, they got their credentials by working absurd hours and constantly on the job. And if you didn't do that, you weren't serious about it. And even I've had peers who have intimated similar things. Um, you know, gosh, really? You can do it in a relatively normal week? Are you really serious about it? It's like, come on. So those sorts of things are some of the reasons why you might uh, try and do it your own way. It doesn't always work, as you can imagine. But you certainly you certainly try to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's um interesting. And what about the building building side? Is that did you spend much time on site or what would you take from some of those other experiences like before starting practice? Yeah. yeah. I think look I think from being with a builder for so long that most of our friends mm. were trades. Mm. And like a friend of mine used to say, oh, well, you're lucky. All my friends are architects, so I'm right. not going to get any commissions out of them. No. <laughs> um, and it's not that I got commissions out of them, but it was always that yeah. they would often um, remind me, oh, architects are so impractical, they don't understand, mm. they don't think mm. about... So I was really always... It was drilled into me um, as an architecture student the importance of buildability yeah. and working with trades and having the experience of... Um, having worked in a couple of smaller practices and then going and working in a construction company for a couple of years and being on site. And it just, it, and it gave you, I think, it's, um, it takes a while often um, 
to get the experience to be on site and given that opportunity in an architecture office. And so to be doing that as a yeah, fourth fantastic. year was fantastic. And just the confidence to be able to say, oh, I don't really know, you know, and um, uh, yeah, and to have those discussions, which yeah. I think is good. So yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that whole business of one of my jobs at one stage was, um, this was ni 1990, I think, and it was much worse than GRC a few years ago. I don't know if anyone remembers the early 90s, but it was a really tough time for architects. And uh, I had just finished studying in 89 and I went straight into doing some tutoring at RMIT and doing a bit of practice on the side. And I also had a part-time site, uh, assistant site architect job on what was PLM, Parrotline Matheson, that sort of eventually evolved into various lines practices. And, um, and that time on site was just really priceless. And that was following on from the time with Robinson Chan on site as well. But it just gave so much more confidence with those sorts of um, spheres. And uh, we did manage to play some fantastic practical jokes, actually. It was when... It's when Q, uh, quality assurance just came in. And so all these new systems were being brought in and we were in this side office. Uh, I was on the telecom tower on the corner of Lonsdale, I think, and Russell. Anyway, they had this British guy on site who was overseeing all the Q&A systems. And this was a Grollo site. And we managed to do, I did a fake, um, a fake detail which we managed to get stamped by the head of Grocon that went through the whole QA system uh, that this British guy then sort of signed off. And um, when he found out that this whole thing was a hoax, it was just the most fantastic um, moment. It was like, construction detail. Yeah, it was a yeah. fake construction detail. And it all started, we were walking around on site one day and there was just openings um, in the slab and they just put a bit of mesh over the top to stop stuff falling down before pipes went in. So he's like, you know, what is that? And we're like, mm, here's, here's, a, here's a nice little trap. So we, we this was where this detail came out, which we called a bug catcher of sorts. I don't know if anyone as kids had a bug catcher. And we involved Petri dishes and all of these things in this detail. The detail was just so ridiculous. And yet, it um, it got through. So uh, he was he was not very happy about that. But... Um, but it was, I felt it was a sort of, not, not fair payback, but uh, on that site, I think there was two other women and they were the two administrators for Grocon and then myself and then, of course, everyone else was a guy. And I do remember, in, even in the consultant section of the site office, there was just a phenomenal number of posters on the walls of PowerTool ads. Um, and I did say to him one day, you know, it is quite distracting talking to you with that woman straddled just behind your head with that power tool. And so, interestingly, they all got taken down. You know, it was just quite a straightforward comment and, um, yeah, they went. But it was quite entertaining. So, hence, I felt the detail was quite a nice little thing Payback. to sneak through. Yep, yep, yep. I was going to ask you about, um, obviously, you do a broad variety of typologies mm. with housing and institutional work. Yeah. How do you how do you decide when someone calls you with a potential commission whether to say yes or no and, and what, what drives you to, to take a project on? 
Um, yeah. I think it's, uh, gosh, diversity is a really interesting thing. So we love having a go at something we haven't done before. I think there's a lot to be said for getting architects who haven't done that type of brief before and the whole thing of precedence and having proven your credentials in a type is madness, actually. I think smart people can very quickly pick up a lot of what you need to and you know where to get the help if you don't have it yourself. So, so that's one thing is, is diversity of project types, uh, a, very, a variety of sectors at any one time, especially when the economy is weird. It's really good if you've got uh, work across a number of sectors as a, as a safety net of sorts. Um, I think if a project just engages us on some level, uh, could be a particularly difficult problem. We seem to love those. Uh, or if it's a client you have some kind of rapport with, uh, Sometimes if it's a site of great interest, you know, it's really fairly diverse. I think sometimes we can be overly optimistic about what you think will be the opportunities or merits of a project. And you often think midway through, God, if only I'd backed that other horse and not this one, which may not even get to the end of the race, you know, and that's, that's always quite a hard thing to judge which projects are really worth uh, pushing for and pursuing. But no, it tends to be that. And certainly we have made a big effort to diversify. So from housing as a starting point to branch out into quite a lot of public sector, which are particularly interested in. And also, I think, to an interest in women being seen to be doing other kinds of projects, not being aligned with simply a domestic sphere, not that there's nothing simple about the domestic, by the way. I think uh, they're the, some of the hardest jobs we've ever done, uh, housing projects. Um, but I think it's just good for us to be engaged with and practising on an, a re really wide range of, of work. Yeah, so there's some of the reasons. I'd love to say fees, but um, that's, yeah, that's often a much harder one to be um, choosing projects projects for. Do you find, is one, is is housing um, better financially than the public work or it really depends well, on sort of institutional? I think, yeah, I used to think housing was a real money sinker and then we did some public sector work mm. and, um, and that's, uh, yeah, it's really, that's a real issue. I mean, that's something I've talked with quite a lot with the OVGA and Government Architects Office to just how on earth we get uh, fairer remuneration for architects' work in the public sector. And I would say, actually, the public sector is often the worst payer uh, compared to... I think there's a perception that developers are the worst payers of private developers, but I would say our toughest experiences have been with public sector clients where it is absolutely fee-driven and they say they're comparing apples with apples and they're not. And that's really frustrating. And there's projects we would really love to do. Um, we missed out on about three in a row recently. Uh, refuge projects, uh, which we've done one of. And on the basis of that, they wanted us to tender on various others, but could not get anywhere near where we needed to. And we thought we were being really competitive. So that's, you know, that's a sad um, situation. But that it's that where... Uh, where architecture is getting directed and how it's understood in terms of its value is sadly 
well, it's undervalued. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the thing is that in the... Um, in housing, which is mainly what I do, mm. I'd love to get into public, but like you said, I can't do a school because I haven't done one before. Mm. And um, Try getting on that education list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, um, that, that took 10 years of ringing and ringing and ringing and eventually getting the, you know, all those forms and then just waiting, but uh, perseverance and just chipping away. And that now you've yeah. done a police station, you get a lot of police stations. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> You're the station expert. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. I think we've done five now. So it's true, you know, once you get foot in the door and it is worth persisting with that, but it's just the patience you need. I'm not a particularly patient person. So sometimes I don't know how I've been able to tolerate this industry for as long as I have, because boy, do you need it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do much teaching? Have you, or did no. you say, or you? Well, someone I just was up in Bond Uni and Gold, the Gold Coast yesterday, yeah. and um, giving a talk, and I got asked the same question. I always feel guilty when I say no, mm. and I, the reason though I think was when I graduated from RMIT, it was the bachelor, five-year bachelor, but yeah. took most of us back then seven years because we were working our way through, uh, working in practice, um, and then when I. Um, when I finished, it was um, I could not wait to see the back of university, and you know I didn't want to do an honours degree, and also didn't feel I had anything to offer, you know, to teach. And quite a lot of my friends were teaching, but you know Mel was teaching and Amy, and yeah. but I just felt like I just didn't know anything yet right. to be able to offer that back. Maybe I would have, but I didn't feel like it. And then I think when I felt I had something to offer, then it's trying to manage a practice with yeah. um, one director and small children, it just became, and I, you know, already felt sort of pulled with not having enough time for this, the team in the office, having another day out of the office I thought would yeah. be um, too much. But I've always been interested in how you've done your, you do a week, a month in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. How does that work? Um, it's, so I, uh, I go to New Zealand for a week every month and in that time do my, um, what is it, a point four uh, role at Victoria University. And in that, when I first started that role, it was mainly for more strategic um, um, structuring of the course, moving to a design-based uh, thesis rather than how they did it more on an arts model. So it was the sort of thing you could do for a week in every month rather than every week. Uh, and then more recently, I've run research streams mainly around high-density forms of housing. So, and again, students who have me as their supervisor know I'm there for a week a month, and so it's intensive, supposedly. Not that you'd know it sometimes, but what doesn't happen in that week. Um, so it's, and I, I have always found with teaching, on the one hand, you feel slightly torn with time, but on the other hand, it was really formative in the early stages of practice as a way to formulate interests or um, preoccupations for the practice to then pursue. And so I've always found that the two practice with teaching, they are very mutually um, supportive or defining of each other. And that's been uh, really, really helpful. So. So, you know, it's some weeks, it's it's pretty full on, but uh, it still seems worth it. And even just having that little bit of time outside of the practice, because uh, I also work on our own stuff when I'm there, uh, just being a bit away from it, even though you're constantly in email contact, just being out of the office and getting a tiny bit of quiet mulling time is mm. 
again, a fantastic opportunity. Mm. If I have a design problem, I'll often take it with me there and can just quietly do that sort of thinking that is quite hard to do in a practice full of people with what I call the hungry birds. Everyone's kind of after attention or something. Mm. So it's when you can actually look at a reference library mm. and look at precedents and just sit with something for a bit instead of that same degree of urgency. So I highly recommend it. Find a way of having a week out every month. Yeah. I think I found even, because I'm, I, um, when you're in the daily ritual of practice, it's and often putting one fire out after the other. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's sort of you, defence mode. Isn't yeah, it? that's yeah. right. And even um, we're in the very early stages of looking into our, this Nightingale project that we're mm. doing. And I found because we're looking at sites and feasibility and then Bond University asked me to come and talk about multi-res and I'm like, well, I'm not an expert on multi-res. We're just starting. Mm. But mm. I think because we were asked to give a talk about it, it it's and doing all the research, it's exactly. made me think. And I've been That's really right. doing a lot of research and it really has started cementing because we didn't just want it to be a... Um, or let's just do another building, you know. It's really about assessing what we think is mm. missing from the mm. multi-res um, sphere. And and you always, I feel a little bit guilty because I take myself off into another room in the office, but you do need that sort of ability to yeah. separate yeah. and just have the time yeah. to not yeah. be, um, yeah, putting out the latest fire on a yeah. project, so. Yeah, no, that space for reflection is mm. just absolutely essential to a practice and... Uh, but it is really hard to make the space for that. I think in some ways that's where, you know, I went through the old bachelors as well. And then when I started teaching at RMIT in 1990, that was when they were first bringing in the master's degree. And, um, and that was when yeah, you had to sort of start having some sort of research practice agenda. So. It was very, very formative in that respect. And that's where you really did start to learn what it means to be a critical practitioner, you know, a, a reflective practitioner. Um, and it is just in the day-to-day -day cut and thrust of projects, just keeping your head... One thing to keep your head above water and another thing to just keep on top of the direction of a project and where you expect it to go and how you do that. And that's that enormous amount of effort that's required and that space to step outside sometimes to just see wood for trees which is yeah it can be very difficult mm. so how are we going for time justine did you want us to wrap it up okay i'll keep going okay sorry just give us a <laughs> or we can have questions yeah sure sure yeah yeah Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I mean, you should appear sooner or later. No, no. <laughs> In the nicest possible way. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what you've your oh, sure. how? how uh, look, I think I think with with that, uh, and obviously teaching is one way of doing that. Uh, being on the design review panel for the OVGA is another. I doing a bit of writing as well, and there's lots of other ways. I think even when we have to stand up in front of a council and present a project to councillors, that is advocacy for architecture. So any, any opportunity to talk about what we do and why we do it is a form of advocacy. So it's something that, yes, you do in those official roles, but also in just day-to-day -day practice. And 
I think it's it's of interest to me because um, so many people are so mystified about what architecture is, what mm. is good architecture, uh, why is it important, why do we bother? And so I think we're partly responsible for helping people to understand more of why it's important mm. and um, and what its impact and effectiveness can be. So that's where I think speaking about it, speaking clearly about it, communicating about it to a much wider audience is a really important thing. And um, and and finding ways to do that in very understandable ways. I think architects can make things sound very difficult and um, hard to access. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And I just don't think that helps us as a profession mm. at all. So whinging about being misunderstood is never very useful. So it is about trying to find ways to yeah, make ourselves more understood in what we do. And I think too there is a sense of the willfulness of architects in making buildings, and it's up to us to explain that uh, willfulness, if you like, and sort of extravagant form making or whatever is sort of a small part of it for some, but there is so much more that we do. There are so many other things that drive the decisions that we make and why a building turns out the way it does, and it's up to us to communicate that more. Mm -hmm. And then I think people start to recognise why it's important mm. why it does matter. Yeah. So. I, I think it's, I'm always amazed how, even though when with, even with one-on-one -on -one clients, when we explain why, why the design is solving all of, you know, it's yeah. responding to its context, the orientation, mm. all of those kind of things, the brief. And we had a client um, a few years ago where we did a new house and the builder went back six months later to fix something and it was an L-shaped house with a no backyard at all, sort of front yeah. garden facing north. And you walk down a loggia into the front door. And they said, do you realise that in winter, the sun goes all the way to the back on the back of the room? And in summer, it doesn't come in. Do you think Claire did that on purpose? <laughs> and he was like, I'm pretty sure that's what you pay an architect for. Yeah. And I was like, and these are sort of what I thought, in, you know, intelligent professionals yeah, yeah. who I had, and we don't just say this is the design, go with it. You know, it's really discussing and explaining the process and why we've yeah. come to this and these are reasons. It's not about yeah. aesthetics or style or yeah, yeah. looking good. It's yeah. responding to constraints yeah. and solving problems. And it's and that that constantly reminds us, mm. reminds me how simply we need to, you know, to, to really, I think we forget how much knowledge we take on and but just with learning and it, we're always learning mm. new things. But mm. um, And that's why even when sometimes, you know, if you have to do an interview for some fairly fluffy magazine or even, mm. you know, sort of, um, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, something where it's often really not greatly of interest. But yeah. for me, I try and I, I still do it, but I try and always try and impart key yeah. architectural principles so that at least yeah. you're trying to get some message across. Absolutely. Um, and I think in that regard, one of the biggest mistakes we make, I was talking to Des Smith yesterday, and um, we were talking about how some buildings are can tend to be all about the architect or the author, uh, and everything about them draws attention to who might have done this thing. And... Um, and the point, the point was, and then we talked about how sometimes architects talk about their work and they say, I wanted it to do this, I wanted it to do that. It's like, who cares what you wanted? 
what what were the other drivers of a project? So it's just something to be, I think, to be quite aware of, of how you explain projects mm. and their drivers. And that thing of the want or the will of the architect is a very problematic one in terms of us being more, um, you know, the profession being more valued or understood for all the other things that it's able to, to do and to perform. So, yeah. I always notice it with students when they say, I wanted my building, my building. It's like, hmm, maybe try saying that some other way or thinking about it in some other way. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, the thing I picked up from Doug Evans in that first semester was, yeah. oh, I've just gone blank. What was it called? It was, um, I, anyway, I, was, I thought it would be a nice way to finish it back off, but I've just gone totally blank. <laughs> but it was that everything had to have, you know, there was, yeah. oh, Totally lost it. Anyway, yeah. but it's th those little things that you can learn yeah. from your lecturer can really stick with you the whole yeah. time. Arbitrary, that was it. Oh, that it can't arbitrary. be arbitrary. Right. Okay. That it, it was always like, why? You know, yeah. like, because I didn't have a clue what I was doing in first semester. Yeah. We were doing a, a design for the QV site and, and, um, and he was like, well, everything has to have a reason as to why you're doing it. And, and that's, and, you know, and that's really logical. And I don't think, I think people misunderstand that. I mean, look, there are architects that do do yeah. unnecessary cosmetic things, but... Primarily, it's all got to have a purpose. Mm -hmm. mm. Very good. Would you? Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, oh, wow, that's great. Usually, um, you press it and it, um, and it uh, works. Um, Hi everybody, I'm Helena from AWS. Uh, a lot of you probably um, don't know who AWS are. I work for an aluminium company down in Dandenong where we have an extrusion facility. Um, I thought I present a lot of um, product presentations, so this is quite different for me to to present. Thanks. Um, so I thought, what am I possibly going to talk about today? Um, in, in a public um, place such as um, the pavilion and what a lovely day. Thank you everybody for coming and thanks to Kirsten and Claire for your presentations today. I thought I would just quickly um, talk off a few pointers that um, Claire and, and Kirsten uh, talked about that you could probably all relate to then. Um, getting yourself a mentor. So uh, Claire and Kirsten mentioned doesn't matter what you do, I think, in your life. I think it's um, a really great idea to get a mentor at some stage. Um, uh, AWS has supported uh, the Institute of Architects in the Constructive Mentoring Program and I myself was um, lucky enough to be involved with um, the mentoring program last year. Um, if anyone here knows um, Alison Cleary, she was my mentor and I can definitely say... Um, if you can get a mentor or, or um, have a mentee in your life um, at some stage um, throughout your work life or your, your personal life, I think that's um, a, a really great thing to do. Um, Claire and Kirsten were talking about having a sense of achievement and purpose, making your clients happy. Um, I think that was something we can all kind of relate to. Getting up in the morning sometimes particularly in the winter that we've had that's just passed it's um yeah a little bit difficult to get up 
in the mornings, but having a, a real sense of purpose and um, something to get up and work for is really important. Also, um, I really took a lot to uh, what you guys were talking about, about work-life balance, particularly with a child myself on, on the way, my first baby. So, yeah, that was really um, quite interesting and talking about family life and work life and trying to um, find a happy medium um, is, yeah, very important too. So if they were the three things I could pick from, from your presentations. That was it for me. So uh, thanks very much for, for speaking. Um, thanks so much to the um, parlour as well. And we hope you would like to uh, stay on for um, a little bit more of the afternoon to enjoy um, networking and the festivities here. Um, yeah, we'd really love that. So thank you. <laughs>